As we prepare our hearts to hear the word of God, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, bless now the reading and proclaiming of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May you be exalted and glorified and may we be edified and built up as your holy people. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake we pray these things. Amen. It would be my kid who's... This is the word of the Lord. It is written. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is a tale of two trees which stood in the midst of the Garden of Eden. And as we will see, these two trees were not only centrally located in the garden, but they very quickly become the center of the creation narrative moving forward. Indeed, all of human destiny is tied up in these two trees. And while this might seem like a tale from a time and place long ago and very different than our own, we should not be mistaken about its consequence on us sitting here today and on every human being who has existed since Adam was placed in the garden. This tale is not a fairy tale. It is not make-believe. It is very real history. And we... Are the ones affected. As surely as we live in a post 9 11 America, we live in a world indelibly shaped by the reverberations that went out from the center of that garden. As one theologian stated, this is our own beginning, destiny, guilt, and end. This is our history. But before we begin to dig into these verses of Genesis 2, seeking to understand the nature of these two trees and the effect of Adam's interaction with them on our lives, we need to understand the broader context of these verses. When we come to Genesis 2, we experience a shift from a view of God in Genesis 1, which presents God as transcendent, distinctly separate from his creation, powerful, 
speaking creation into being from nothing to a view of God in which he is presented as eminent and personal, displaying God in a highly anthropomorphic way. God is presented as a sculptor, shaping Adam from the dirt and breathing life into him. God is presented as a gardener, planting this garden in Eden. And God is present in the garden. He, this is his garden, his dwelling place. Later in chapter 3, we are told that God walks through this garden looking for Adam and Eve. God is intricately involved in his creation. He is close to it. And as it is important that we understand that these two pictures of God as being transcendent and powerful and being eminent and personal, they are both true. Scripture wants us to understand that it is not one or the other. But with this picture of God in Genesis 2, we need to understand that what we are seeing in Genesis 2 is God's fatherly care for these creatures he has made in his image. Like every good father, God desires to provide for his children. He ensures that their needs are met. They are given safe shelter and abundant food. And most importantly, he has given them access to himself. It's important that we understand these verses in the context of God's fatherly care because Adam's relationship with God, his creator and sustainer, is at the heart of the story about these two trees at the center of the garden. And so as we seek to understand the nature of these two trees, we can pretty easily discern the meaning of the first tree given a specific name in verse 9 of our passage, the tree of life. Its name is pretty self-descriptive. Eating of its fruit gave life, and eating of it in perpetuity gave perpetual life. It's pretty clear from Genesis 2 that Adam and later Eve had unlimited access to this tree. It was available for them to eat from. God tells Adam that he may surely eat of every tree of the garden, save one. But there was no prohibition on the tree of life. And we are aware that after the fall, Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden in order to remove their access to the tree of life. Genesis 3, through 24 states, Now lest he, meaning Adam, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. No longer could Adam eat and live. His punishment was death. But before the fall, there was no prohibition on the tree of life because there was nothing prohibiting Adam from having access to God. As German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer stated about the tree of life, the tree of life is mentioned with such little ceremony before the fall because before that, life is not something problematic or to be sought after or snatched at. Instead, it is just there as a given life, indeed life 
lived before God. Bonhoeffer goes on to say of the tree of life, it was at the center. That is all that is said about it. The life that comes from God is at the center. That is to say that God who gives life is at the center. And so this life that Adam enjoys is marked by a relationship with God in which there is unbroken unity and fellowship with his creator from whom he receives life. And we find that this relationship is one of obedience. For in verse 16 we find the first place in scripture where the word command is used. And the Lord God commanded. And this command relates to the second tree which stood at the center of the garden. And so we move from the tree of life, which is mentioned with such little ceremony, to this second tree that immediately has a special word of God attached to it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From this tree, Adam is commanded not to eat lest he die. And here, God places a boundary. And again, this is in the context of God's fatherly care. So we should be seeing this in the context of God's goodness, not any harsh restriction. For God has just told Adam that he may eat of any other tree. But why the restriction on this one? What makes this tree a danger to the life given in the first tree? Well, the second tree is a little more difficult to understand because we don't immediately recognize Hebrew idioms. A simple reading of its name would imply that its fruit merely gave one the ability to know right from wrong. Is this really what the knowledge of good and evil was about, though? Is it really about gaining moral discernment? If so, why would this be forbidden? Would Adam not have to exercise moral discernment in obeying God? I think that one finds it quickly becomes difficult to make a biblical case for this interpretation. So what was it really about? What is knowledge of good and evil? The answer might lie in Ezekiel 28, which has been described as the closest parallel to Genesis 2 and 3. In which we find a prophecy against the king of Tyre who is said there to have been in Eden, the garden of God, until he is expelled for being proud and claiming to have a heart of a God, being wiser than Daniel. So what is the second tree about? Wisdom. But why would wisdom be forbidden, you might wonder, especially since Scripture identifies seeking wisdom as one of the highest goals of the godly. Scripture, however, also makes it plain that there is a wisdom that is God's sole possession, which man should not aspire to attain. God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. God's wisdom which has not been revealed to us, is beyond our comprehension. So as one biblical scholar puts it, to pursue it without reference to revelation is to assert human autonomy. It is to assert human autonomy and to neglect the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning 
of knowledge. It is here that we discover why the fruit of the second tree was prohibited. Eating it would be an act of moral autonomy, deciding what is right without reference to God's revealed will. It is seeking wisdom without reference to the word of God. It is therefore a rejection of accountability to God, to God's authority, by usurping a role that belongs to God alone. To eat the fruit would be to sidestep God in his word and will in order to become wise. Now at this point, we can go in all sorts of wrong directions with this passage. We can begin asking questions that the text does not intend to answer. For instance, we might ask, well, why did God even put this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? Or why didn't God just create humans in a way that would be impossible for them to sin? We might come up with some good answers to these questions, like perhaps Adam's freedom before God has no meaning without prohibition. Beloved, let me encourage you, however, to not ask questions of the Scripture which the Scripture does not intend to answer. Not here and not anywhere. Remember, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And you can drive yourself mad asking questions that the scripture does not intend to answer. But more importantly, this is one of the lessons of this text. Stop grasping after things that have not been revealed to you. If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. So what does the scripture intend to point us too. And it is this. What the two trees are all about. A decision. A decision between life. True life. Life as God intends. A life of freely receiving that which God gives. A life dependent on God. A life which trusts God in his word. That places Faith in God's goodness that rests in the reality that God has the best interest for his children at heart. You can have life or you can have autonomy, independence, seeking wisdom outside of God, believing that you or I can determine what is best for ourselves, having faith in our own abilities to discern and to provide, thinking that you or I know better than God what each of us needs to be your own God. And this decision on an even more fundamental level is about obedience. Because everything that has been created, has been created to glorify God, including and especially humans. We exist not for ourselves, but for God. And so if we exist to display his glory, it is God who determines how we are to live our lives. But the question remains for each of us, am I going to obey God or reject his authority over me? One commentator put it succinctly when he stated, How simple and sober is our narrative in letting the meaning of life in paradise consist completely in the question of obedience to God. 
This passage contains the covenant that God made with Adam. This agreement that is dictated by God that he will be Adam's God and give him life if he but obeys. We need to note here that God doesn't have to be in relationship with Adam. He doesn't need to be in relationship with him. It is solely out of the overflow of who God is that he creates in the first place. It is solely out of the overflow of his loving character that God creates a creature made in his image that has the capacity to be in relationship with him, to be loved by him and to love him in return. The covenantal relationship that God enters into with Adam is solely by his sovereign choice, just as creation is God's sovereign choice. And so God in his great love is providing Adam with everything that he needs and more. He is providing for Adam in abundance. The tree of life is a sign of this covenant. He's not withholding any good thing from him. And Adam is free. He's free to live. He's free to have dominion over this creation which God has made. He's free to be in relationship with God. He's free to eat of any tree except this one. And God's command to abstain from that one tree stands as a boundary against the thing, the one thing that will negate Adam's life and freedom because it will cut him off from the one who is the giver of every good thing. It isn't that God doesn't want Adam to be wise. It is that proper wisdom comes in time from obedience. Unfortunately, we see here a foreshadowing of what is to come in chapter 3 with the fall of humanity. These verses are the hinge on which the creation narrative is about to take a sharp turn for the worse. And as we know, Adam will break this covenant And as we know, the consequences are devastating. It is hard to overestimate just how ravaging the effects of the fall are. The brokenness of all of creation, the guilt and shame that come, and death. Oh, the death that comes. Adam and Eve's firstborn son becomes a murderer. By spilling their second son's blood in a field. And all because of this decision for autonomy. This word literally means self-law. Adam and Eve make the decision that they would like the ability to decide what is best in their own eyes apart from God. And this sin has been repeated again and again and again in Adam's posterity. We will see Adam's descendants descend into a state of doing what is right in their own eyes. And things will continue to descend into evil from there. By chapter 7 of Genesis, God's judgment will be poured out on the earth as God destroys the earth in a flood. But humanity continues in its sin after the flood and until today. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So I want you just to think about where we are as a nation right now. Think about what was on the ballot this past week, about the amendments that were approved, about the people who were voted into office and the ideologies they represent. We live in an age of postmodernism in which all authority centers on the autonomous self with a mantra of do what you feel is right. 
It is like we are at a height of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a time of relativism. We as a culture claim to be enlightened, even as we have totally disregarded moral values, which have seemed self-evident for countless generations past. And this has led us to a point in our nation's history where the majority political view is becoming one of identity politics, which is based in the idea of oppression. And in large part, what this movement is expressing, or so it seems to me, is a rejection of common moral values. In other words, it's expressing a feeling of oppression under others' moral values, especially the Judeo-Christian values this country was founded upon. It's saying, don't impose your values on me. I want to be free from any moral values but my own. And at this point, this political ideology is at its core a rejection of God. It insists in sometimes violent ways that we are accountable to no one but ourselves. We don't want anyone telling us that there are objective truths, especially not from some seemingly antiquated book espousing a God who would have the gall to judge me. If God exists as our culture's worldview, then God exists to encourage and to love and to give me what I want, not to condemn. We don't want anyone telling us what we can't and can and can't do or what we can and can't be. We want to determine what our life looks like to the point that we have begun questioning truths that seem so fundamentally objective, like gender being determined by biology and the necessity of a male and female in human reproduction. And we call this ideology liberty and progress without any hint of the irony of the fact that we have lost our true freedom and progression as beings made in the image of God to reflect God's character to all of creation when we traded life in obedience to God for death from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is a twisted kind of logic that calls progress, that which moves away from the creator of order and goodness and beauty and truth. But this was our choice. Eat from the tree of life or eat from the tree of death. And we in Adam have chosen death again and again and again. And humanity continues to choose death. So in this environment where we demand our autonomy to make these decisions apart from any accountability to God and his word, is it any wonder we have ended up as a culture of death? When life depends on my own wisdom, which is finite, and my own ability from this finite wisdom to give it meaning, life can quickly lose all meaning. So if I don't assign any value or meaning to the life of my unborn child, it should be my right to terminate that life. The same with my own life. If illness or injury causes me to be in a state that I feel like my body has become useless, then why not end it? 
And this quickly devolves into a culture where life is meaningless and killing is glorified as it has been in our music and movies and video games. And we keep wondering why there is so much violence in our culture, why things like what happened in California this week continue to happen with such frequency, even as we refuse to acknowledge that the giving and taking of life belongs to God, not to us. Death is the ultimate end of our desire to be autonomous. When we move away from the giver of meaning in life, we are moving into meaninglessness in death. We were made for God, not for ourselves. We are not our own, but it seems like every day we are pushing the limits of depravity even further as a culture. But thanks be to God. God does not abandon his creation. He does not forsake those whom he has created in his image. This covenant with Adam, which in Reformed theology we refer to as the covenant of works, is not God's final covenant. He chooses to continue to be in relationship with man And the covenant of works gives way to the greater covenant, the covenant of redemption. Because Adam serves as a covenantal head of all of humanity, all of humanity is fallen and sinful. You do remember what one of the most important words in scripture is though, don't you? But, but God, but God condescends to us. God's word takes on human flesh. The new Adam, the perfect Adam, the one who will not choose autonomy, but who will live in perfect obedience to God. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And we shouldn't miss that the gospel is not just about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's about his life. It's about his fulfilling the covenant of works. Think about what happens as soon as Jesus is baptized. As soon as he is officially acknowledged to be the son of God, Jesus is led into the wilderness to begin the battle with Satan, to begin to undo the curse by succeeding at the very point where man has failed. And he is attacked by Satan who wants nothing more than to undermine God's redemptive work. And what was this first temptation that Jesus faces? If you, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And can you hear the hissing serpent sowing seeds of doubt in God's word, which has just someday 40 days earlier declared the identity of Jesus as God's son? And what is Jesus' response? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Adam failed to obey God's word. Jesus commits himself to live in complete obedience to God's word alone. It is the undoing of Adam's failure from the start. Don't miss this. Jesus' life is one of humble submission to the will of the Father, not doing anything but what the Father commands. Jesus, even though he is God, doesn't come grasping for that which has not been given to him. He humbly submits, and this is at the heart of our redemption. 
we need to hear and believe at this point that God does not ignore our disobedience. Our sin is not inconsequential. Our sins are rooted in choice for human autonomy. It is a failure to trust and obey God in his word. And the consequence is death. It is hell. Just as it was for Adam. The wages of sin is death. So there is a tremendous price to pay, more than we can afford, but, but, by the grace of God, Jesus offers up his obedience for our disobedience. And he suffers the consequence of our disobedience that we might be freed from the penalty of our sins. This is a wonderful exchange. His righteousness for our unrighteousness, his obedience for our disobedience, his life for our death. And it is so that we will have life that he has died. If we move from Genesis, the first book of God's story of redemption, to Revelation, the last book of God's story, we will find this word to the church in chapter 2. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And at the end of Revelation in chapter 2, 22, where the apostle John is granted a glimpse of this paradise, this is what he says he sees. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to eat of the tree of life. And that they may enter the city by the gates. Dearly beloved, we live in the midst of a tale of two trees. We know how the story ends. In paradise, with the tree of life back at the center because God is at the center. And the people of God have access to it once again. But how does your story end? How does my story end? Here in between the trees at the beginning of creation and the one that stands at the end, it might be easy to see the ways in which the culture around us is continuing to eat of the tree of death. But what about you? What about me? We are daily making decisions. From where are we drawing wisdom? Are we seeking to live by human wisdom or by the very word of God? Are we choosing life in obedience to God's word? Or are we choosing to eat of the tree of death? For those of you who are in Christ, Jesus has freed you by the power of his Holy Spirit to be led by and live by his spirit. Scripture teaches us that there is no law against such things, only life. Are you submitting yourself to God in the power of the Spirit? Are you living in the victory that Jesus Christ has won for you to be a conqueror over sin and death in him? 
Let me encourage you this day to seek God. Seek his wisdom. Submit yourselves and find life. Adam discovered the hard way that it is the grabbing for life, that it is in the grabbing for life that we lose it. It is in dying to ourselves that we find life. Place your faith in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ, in his perfect obedience to the Father, in his death on the cross for you, which paid the penalty of your disobedience. Cast yourself on Christ and find there the wisdom of God. It's in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to you, to your word, to your will. Lord, that we would place our faith in Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins in the places where we fail to obey you. Lord, that we would find life in him by the power of his spirit. Lord, that we would be those who are numbered among those who have succeeded in entering into your paradise. Where you are at the center and where we for eternity can eat of the tree of life and live free of sin and death. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing.